Introduction In most pediatric practices in developed nations, infants and children are routinely examined several times in the first two months of life, every two to three months until 18 months, less often through age three years, and generally yearly thereafter, unless they have chronic conditions or are at high risk. Table 1 to 1 encompasses a list of items, categorized by age group, that should be considered in pediatric health supervision visits from ages 1 month through 10 years. Other age visits are considered elsewhere in this book, chapters 2 and 3. This list is by no means exhaustive, but should provide a starting point and direction for further study. The steps do not have to be completed in any set order. For example, the sequence may change based on the age of the patient. Older children may be embarrassed in a medical gown and are able to listen and respond more comfortably when they are fully dressed. A complete physical examination is needed at each health supervision visit, with key highlights noted in the table. Observing the parents and child. At every visit, it is important to closely observe the parent-child interaction to ascertain whether parental expectations for the child's behavior are in line with the developmental age. For instance, is the parent communicating in ways an infant or young child may understand? Does the child seek the attention of the parent prior to embarking on a new behavior? When the child misbehaves, how does the parent react? Does the parent of an older child give her or him appropriate freedom to respond to questions? Partnering with families in a patient-centered medical home. In order to attain optimal health and illness prevention, clinicians must establish effective family-centered partnerships that encourage open and supportive communication with children and families. The general pediatric practice should affirm the strengths of individual family members. A health supervision partnership should be established between the child, family, community, and healthcare team. The pediatrician should provide the family and child with evidence-based information to assist them in making medical decisions. In most cases, the primary care pediatrician should coordinate the care of children with significant medical problems and special needs. This responsibility extends beyond the time of a scheduled patient visit and may involve the assistance of other office staff. Ongoing communication with subspecialist, home care providers, and childcare or school staff is essential in the management of care for children with complex health conditions. Effective communication skills in pediatric primary care. Some effective behaviors by the clinician include introducing oneself, greeting each family member, and sitting at the same level as the parent or older child. Patients and parents want to be listened to without interruption. Repeat the symptoms or questions of the patient or parent to make it clear you understand them correctly. It is useful to encourage questions and provide full answers in ordinary language free of medical jargon. Drawings may be helpful to illustrate your responses. If language barriers are evident at the beginning of the visit, make arrangements for appropriate translation before proceeding further. Goal setting during the health supervision visit. To make most efficient use of time, it is helpful at the start of the visit to decide with the patient and parent on a mutual agenda. Ask the parent and or patient what they would like to get out of the visit. Beyond the regular, checkup, do they have any concerns they would like addressed? Summarize their concerns and agree to address those that are realistic to cover at that visit, and make a plan to cover all concerns at either the current visit or in another setting. Anticipatory guidance. Primary care pediatrics focuses on health promotion and disease injury prevention, and an important tool for this effort is anticipatory guidance, the advice that clinicians give to parents and children. Those offering this advice should be aware that parents may have limited ability to retain long lists of recommendations, so it is useful to limit the number of items discussed at each visit. Some physicians integrate anticipatory guidance with the examination, e.g., while examining the mouth, how many times a day does your child brush her or his teeth? Does he or she see a dentist every six months for routine evaluation? 
Many practices make use of written materials and ancillary staff to provide this preventive health information. In deciding on the central issues to discuss at each health supervision encounter, it is useful to understand the main sources of morbidity and mortality at each age of a child. In young infants, through four months of age, the leading cause of death is sudden infant death syndrome, which has declined significantly in incidence since the American Academy of Pediatrics began recommending, back to sleep, in 1994. Infants should be placed to sleep on their backs but should spend some time prone when awake and supervised in order to prevent positional brachycephaly and encourage strengthening of the upper extremities and posterior neck muscles. After four months of age, and extending through the remainder of childhood, traumatic injuries cause most deaths. The mechanisms of these injuries change with age, and this knowledge has influenced the prioritization of issues to discuss at health supervision visits. Motor vehicle injuries are major causes of morbidity and mortality for all children and are the leading cause of injury death starting from age 3 years. Car safety seats have been found to prevent deaths in 71% of infants, birth to 1 year, and 54% of toddlers, 1 to 4 years. Child car safety recommendations are undergoing modification. The most updated information may be found at http www.aap.org. In addition, child pedestrian deaths may be prevented by careful supervision of children near traffic. In 2008, 13,000 children below 16 years were injured while riding bicycles. Many of these injuries were preventable if helmets were used universally. Falls are the leading cause of non-fatal injuries in children. Many of these may be prevented by installing stairway gates, installing window guards on upper floors, avoiding infant walkers, employing safe playground design, and supervising children closely. Regrettably, homicide and suicide are leading causes of death throughout childhood and adolescence, and non-fatal firearms injuries are also very common. Half of U.S. households have guns, and half of these are stored loaded. Homes with guns have three times the risk of homicide and five times the risk of suicide as those without firearms. In addition, children watch violent acts on TV an average of 45 times each day. Recommendations to store guns locked and unloaded, to store ammunition separately, and to monitor and reduce TV and other screen time may prevent many of these injuries. Drowning is the second leading cause of injury death in childhood. Many drowning deaths are due to lack of supervision in the bathtub, unprotected access to a pool, or lack of swimming skills. Toddlers and young children must be supervised at all times while in the bathtub or around pools or other bodies of water. Residential and commercial swimming pools should be fenced in, with unscalable fences, and have locked gates. Isolation fencing, fencing limited to the immediate pool area, is more effective at preventing accidental drowning than perimeter property fencing. CPR training is available to parents through the American Heart Association and many area hospitals. Learning to swim is an important preventive measure but does not take the place of close supervision. The third leading source of injury mortality is fires and burns. 40% of fire deaths occur in homes without smoke alarms. Most victims die from smoke or toxic gases rather than burns, and children are among the leading victims. Working smoke alarms, with batteries replaced annually, and home fire escape plans are helpful to reduce these hazards. Smoking cessation decreases the likelihood that matches or lighters will be left where children can experiment with them. Scald burns also cause significant morbidity and may be prevented by close supervision of young children near stoves and hot water faucets, as well as turning down home water heaters to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Choking is a leading cause of both illness and death in children. Choking risk starts when infants begin to grab small items and move them toward their mouths, around six months of age, and remains high through age three years. Many children do not have fully erupted second molars until age 30 months. 
Inappropriate food choices include nuts, popcorn, hot dogs, hard vegetables, meat with bones, and seeds. Food, coins, and small toys constitute the most commonly aspirated objects. Inadequate supervision and pediatric anatomy result in increased risk. Poisoning is a major source of morbidity in childhood. Risk begins with the onset of hand-to-mouth behavior in infancy and increases as the child becomes mobile. Medications, cleaners, cosmetics, and plants are the leading poisons. Parents should keep these items out of reach of young children and have the National Poison Control Hotline number accessible at all times, 1-800-222-1222. Dental caries, tooth decay, is the most common chronic disease among U.S. children. Untreated caries cause infection and pain, affecting speech, dietary intake, and learning. Proper dental care can prevent dental caries. A first dental checkup is recommended within 6 months of initial tooth eruption or at 12 months of age, whichever comes first. Many pediatric offices also apply fluoride topically to developing dentition in young children. Screening many pediatric health supervision visits are associated with recommended screening tests. These tests are meant to identify treatable conditions that may benefit from early detection. In deciding which screening tests to recommend, there should be evidence that the screened condition is more treatable when detected early, that the treatment is available to the patient, and that the benefits of the treatment outweigh the risks of both the treatment and the screening program. Due to the rarity of many conditions screened in pediatrics, the majority of positive tests are actually false positives, associated with no disease. A frequent problem in pediatrics is the negative psychological impact of labeling children with conditions they do not have, and false positive screening tests add to this burden. When conveying positive screening test results to parents, it is particularly important to be aware of this issue. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends universal screening for anemia at one year of age. Patients with hemoglobin levels vaccines contain all or part of a weakened or non-viable form of the infectious organism. Vaccination stimulates the recipient's immune system to develop a protective response that mimics that of natural infection but that usually presents little or no risk to the recipient. Figure 1.1 represents the current vaccination schedule recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization, ACIP, for children ages birth through six years in the United States. Most healthy children are then considered up-to-date on vaccinations until the age of 10 to 11 years, with the exception of annual influenza vaccination. Periodically, ACIP releases additional vaccine recommendations. These can be accessed at http colon slash slash www.cdc.gov slash vaccine slash rec slash asip slash default.htm. In the notes below the table, be aware that two vaccines are currently administered solely or on a different schedule to children with underlying health problems. The pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, PPSV, is recommended for the following patients is greater than or equal to two years of age. 1. Immunocompetent children with chronic heart or lung disease, diabetes, or cochlear implants. 2. Children with functional or anatomic asplenia, e.g., sickle cell disease. And 3. Children who are immunocompromised, HIV infection, certain renal diseases, congenital immunodeficiencies, and immunocompromising treatments due to malignancies. The meningococcal conjugate vaccine, MCV, is recommended for children as greater than or equal to two years of age who have asplenia or inherited complement deficiencies. Despite their long history of safe use and impressive cost-to-benefit ratio, there are some contraindications to use of certain vaccinations. A history of anaphylactic reaction to a component of a vaccine is an absolute contraindication. For instance, people who are allergic to egg or chicken protein should not receive the influenza vaccine. Contraindications are vaccine-specific, and discussion of this topic is beyond the scope of this source.
Precautions are generally temporary conditions under which administration of vaccines may be delayed, fever and or moderate to severe illness. Developmental milestones Intellectual and physical development in infants and children occur in predictable, sequential patterns. Notable skills are subdivided into gross motor, fine motor adaptive, or visual motor, language and social milestones. Key milestones for developmental surveillance are listed in Table 1 to 1. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that development be assessed with a formal screening tool at several health supervision visits in early childhood. This permits the early identification of potential delays in development and prompt referral for intervention. Some commonly used general developmental screening tests include the Denver Developmental Screening Test 2, Denver 2, the Parents' Evaluation of Developmental Status, PEDS, and the Ages and Stages Questionnaire, ASQ. Each of these has its own strengths, and some rely more on parent report, but all of them provide useful information to assist in recommendations for further evaluation. However, even when the test identifies no areas of concern, if the pediatrician has concerns, the child should be more fully evaluated. Developmental delay is diagnosed when performance lags significantly compared with average attainment in a given skill area for a child at the same age, adjusted for gestational age. In former preterm infants, under 36 weeks gestation, up to 2 years of age, developmental age should be adjusted for gestational age. For example, a child born 3 months early should have 3 months subtracted from his or her chronological age before assessing developmental skills. Developmental delays may be focal, isolated to one domain among gross motor, fine motor adaptive, language, or social, or global, crossing multiple domains. Autism spectrum disorders, ASD, are a continuum of chronic, non-progressive developmental disabilities that appear during the first three years of life. They represent a neurologic disorder that affects normal brain function, particularly in social interaction and communication skills, see Chapter 15. It is recommended that all children be screened for ASD at 18 and 24 months of age. The most common screening tool is the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, MCHAT. Toddlers identified as at risk on this screen should be referred for further evaluation, since intensive early intervention can improve socialization and communication skills in those affected by ASD. Language delay Language is the best indicator of future intellectual potential, and language delay is the most commonly diagnosed form of developmental delay in preschool children. Speech disorders involve difficulty producing the sounds and rhythms of speech. Phonetic disorders are problems with articulation. Speech and phonetic difficulties are expressive disorders, while language disorders often affect both expressive and receptive language skills. Disfluency produces interruptions in the flow of speech. Developmental disfluency is observed in many preschoolers, resolves by age 4 years, and is not pathologic. True disfluency, stuttering, is characterized by signs of muscular tension and struggle when speaking, and or complete speech blockage, accompanied by frustration in the child. Stuttering can significantly impede the ability of the affected child to communicate orally. Speech therapy is often quite effective for children who stutter. Since young children may be uncomfortable speaking freely in front of strangers, a detailed history is often necessary to characterize the quantity and quality of the child's speech. Parental concern about a child's language development is a good predictor of the need for further evaluation, which should always begin with a full audiologic, hearing, assessment. Referral to a speech pathologist for evaluation and treatment, if indicated, should follow. The most frequent cause of mild to moderate hearing loss in young children is otitis media with effusion. Dental development and care. The first primary teeth to erupt are usually the lower central incisors, 6 to 10 months, followed by upper central incisors, 8 to 12 months, 
upper lateral incisors, 9 to 13 months, and lower lateral incisors, 10 to 16 months. These are followed by the canines, cuspids, and molars. The full set of 20 primary teeth will erupt by 25 to 33 months of age. Primary teeth begin to exfoliate at 6 to 7 years of age, as permanent dentition begins to erupt, also beginning with the central and lateral incisors. Complete permanent dentition continues through adolescence. At first tooth eruption, parents should be advised to clean teeth with a soft brush or cloth twice daily. In toddlers, a pea-sized amount of non-fluoridated toothpaste may be used. Pediatric providers should ascertain that children get adequate fluoride supplementation to protect their teeth. Fluoride combats tooth decay by incorporation into the structure of developing teeth and by contact with the dental surface. Approximately 60% of U.S. communities are supplied with fluoridated tap water. Though most bottled water does not contain fluoride, some brands designed for infants do contain the recommended concentration of 0.7 to 1.2 ppm. Infants and children not receiving fluoride from water should be prescribed fluoride supplements as drops or tablets. Too much fluoride may lead to fluorosis, with permanent dental enamel staining in children below 8 years of age, so clinicians should be careful in assuring that children get an appropriate amount of supplemental fluoride and that young children do not have access to ingesting significant amounts of fluoride toothpaste or mouthwashes. This may also be a problem in communities whose water supply has over 2 ppm of fluoride. Key points The leading cause of death through 4 months of age is sudden infant death syndrome. After 4 months of age, the leading cause of childhood death is trauma. Motor vehicle injuries cause most traumatic deaths after age 3. Drowning is the second leading cause of injury death in childhood. Fires and burns are the third leading cause of injury death in children. Most fires occur in homes without working smoke alarms. Scald burns can be prevented by turning water heater temperature down to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Risk for choking and poisoning is highest between ages 9 months and 3 years. Falls are the leading cause of non-fatal injuries in children. Dental caries is the leading chronic illness in childhood. Until 2 years of age, a child's chronological age should be adjusted for gestational age at birth when assessing developmental milestones. The Denver 2, PEDS, and ASQ or developmental screening tests used at several visits in early childhood to identify potential developmental delays. All children should be screened for autism spectrum disorders at 18 and 24 months. Language is the best indicator of intellectual potential. Any child with suspected speech or language disorder should be referred for a full audiology evaluation. The full set of 20 primary teeth should erupt by 25 to 33 months. Too much fluoride may cause fluorosis, which is irreversible staining of the enamel of the permanent dentition.